Well, good afternoon, everybody. A warm welcome to New Life Church here on the, this Lord's Day. Thank you for, for joining us. Today we conclude our sermon series in the five solas. Uh, we have been going through this over the, the last month, looking at the solas of the, the Reformation. And today we are finishing with Solo Deo Gloria. So on Tuesday, this Tuesday, the 31st of October, we will celebrate 506 years of the, the Reformation. Um, Tuesday will, will mark an important day in the history of Christianity, um, because that was the day that Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 Thesis to the, to the door of the, the church in, in Wittenberg in 1517. So today, all around the world, Protestant churches will observe the last Sunday in October as Reformation Sunday. So, happy Reformation Sunday, everybody. Uh, the Reformation began when Martin Luther, the Catholic Augustinian monk, sparked a debate that eventually gave us five key Reformation doctrines that are usually referred to by their, their Latin name, Sola Scriptura, Solus Christus, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, and Solo, so, soli Deo Gloria. And the cry of the Reformation is that we are made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so says the Scriptures alone. And today we're going to conclude, as I said in our study, by looking at Soli Deo Gloria, Gloria to God alone. So please stand with me this morning. We are going to read Romans chapter 11. Just four verses, Romans chapter 11 from verse 33 to verse 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, and to Him be glory forever. Amen. Father, I do feel very inadequate this morning, insufficient to be able to express your, your glory that you deserve. And I pray, Father, Lord, that your Spirit would work in me and, and through me today, and He would teach us, that He would open our eyes to what this really means, Lord, how we can better glorify you in our bodies, in our lives, wherever you put us, in our workplace, at home, at school, Help us, Lord, to live for your glory. Lord, we pray for your help today. Help us to see the importance of this, the magnitude of this today, that it would not fall to the ground, Lord, that we won't miss how, what it means, Lord, to glorify you. So we pray for your help, Lord. Please teach us. For the sake of your great name, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated.
So let me start this morning by giving you a definition before we go into the text. Soli Deo Gloria is a Latin phrase. And the Latin word soli means alone or only. Soli is the root of our English word solitary. So you can remember that. And the phrase Deo Gloria means the glory of God. So soli Deo Gloria means to the glory of God alone. And I mentioned a couple of weeks back that all of these solas, they really are interrelated. They are connected to each other. And you cannot have one without the other, um, as again we will, we will see today. And Soli Deo Gloria has reference to our salvation in Christ alone, which we've already looked at. And when the Reformers spoke of our salvation to the glory of God alone, they emphasized the the grace of God alone, which we looked at last week. Last week we learned that salvation is all of grace. It's not of our works. It's not anything that we've done to deserve salvation. A key phrase which we looked at in the scriptures, Ephesians 2 verse 9, which, which tells us, so that no one can boast. That is, God's grace in providing salvation excludes all human pride and boasting. And in making this case for justification by faith apart from the law, Paul writes in Romans 3.27, Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? And his answer is no, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. There really is no room for the glory of man in our salvation. The glory belongs to the Lord alone. Jesus said in John chapter 15 verse, 50, verse 5, apart from me you can do nothing. And if it were possible for someone to receive salvation or attain salvation through the works of the law, then we would have something to boast about, wouldn't we? We would have something to boast about, but it is impossible. It is impossible. We cannot save ourselves. We are dead in our sins, we are dead in our trespasses, and we could do nothing to help ourselves towards life, towards spiritual life. But praise the Lord, as we read in Romans 6, 23, that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And again, the glory belongs to our Lord. All of it, not ourselves. Solo, soli Deo Gloria. And today in Romans 11, 36, which we will study, we will again see how salvation is all of the Lord and how God should be receiving all of that glory. So before we dive into this text, I need to give you some context just to help you understand what Paul is, is teaching here. Uh, really, you can divide the, the book of Romans into two parts, from chapter 1 to chapter 11, and then from chapter 12 to chapter, 20, to, to, to chapter 16. And just to give you a quick summary of the, the first 11 chapters, chapter 1 to 3, Paul says, Be quiet. Stop making excuses. We are all sinners. Chapter 4 and 5, How can we be made right with God? And then chapter 6 to chapter 8, How do we live this out? How do we live this out? And then chapter 9 to chapter 11, 
There are some really heavy questions here about salvation. But now we get to the end of chapter 11, what we're going to look at today. And before he goes into the second half of the letter, Paul really, he breaks out into, into song. He breaks out into a doxology. He breaks out into a, a praise. And at this point, he's, he's like the man who has hiked for miles and miles, and suddenly he comes to the, to the Grand Canyon, and his, and his mouth just drops open because he has no words. He's just amazed at the, the magnificence of God's creation. And now, you can stand there, and you can, you can lecture somebody about the Grand Canyon, or you could just stand there and be overwhelmed by the beauty of, that, of what you are seeing. And that's kind of the, the scene that, that Paul is setting for us here in our passage. Paul is standing at the end of chapter 11. He is really overwhelmed. He is overwhelmed by God's goodness and God's grace. And he says to all of us, can you possibly believe this? Can you possibly believe this? And really Paul's doctrine is leading to praise. It's leading to doxology. He's Theology is affecting his doxology here. J.R. Packer has once said that the test of theology is the kind of devotion that it produces. And I think that's right, and I think that's exactly what is happening here with Paul. His devotion is because of his understanding of the theology that he has just taught. And that should be true of every single one of us, not just accumulating facts and accumulating knowledge. That's not the point of studying the Scriptures. That's not the point of Christianity. The point of getting to know God is so that we can praise God, so that we can worship God. And our passage here is Paul's devotion. After his explanation of the doctrine of salvation, Paul bursts into praise. As he reaches this conclusion of his exposition, he, he cannot contain himself. And he has to burst into, into praise. It's like he's saying, can you believe this? Can you believe how much God loves us? Can you believe that he loves us so much that he, he sent his own son into the world to die for us? He sent his son to take my place. Can you believe this? He's not giving explanation here. He's just praising. He can't explain this. He can't explain how, how God would, would send his son to take his place. He can't believe this. He's saying it's, it's unbelievable. It's unfathomable. Who can understand a God like this? And then he says, to God be the glory alone. Soli Deo Gloria. And that's what we're going to look at, how Paul comes to this point in the passage in Romans chapter 11. But let's use the following outline. My first point this morning is adoration, sorry, this afternoon is adoration of the heart. And we see that in verse 33 to verse 35. Look there in your Bibles in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. The apostle has three subjects of admiration there. Notice in that passage. He expresses his admiration of, number one, the riches Number two, the wisdom. And number three, the knowledge of God. The expression of 
the, the riches is a, is a Hebrew expression, meaning the deep or profound riches of God. And Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, he, he has the following thoughts on the, the riches of God. He says, I remember while being taken one day to see a gorgeous palace at Venice, where every piece of furniture was made with, with most exquisite taste. And of the richest material where, where, where statues and pictures of enormous price abounded on all hands. And the floor of each room was paved with mosaics of marvelous art and extraordinary value. As I was shown from room to room and allowed to roam amid the treasury by its courteous owner, I felt a considerable timidity. I was afraid to sit anywhere, nor did I hardly dare to put down my foot or rest my hand to lean Everything seemed to be too good for ordinary mortals like myself. But when one is introduced into the gorgeous palace of infinite goodness, costlier and fairer far, one gazes wonderingly with reverential awe at the matchless vision. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. I am not worthy of the least of all the benefits. O the depths of the love and the goodness of God. This is an admiration. Look at verse 33. At the next subject, he looks at wisdom, the depths of the riches and wisdom. So wisdom is the choice of the best means to accomplish the best ends. And what Paul is referring to here, in the context of this passage, is God's plan to save a people by His grace and not by our works. Paul is admiring God's wisdom in the very gospel of Jesus Christ. See the third subject of admiration there, the knowledge of the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge. And the Greek word for knowledge is, is gnosis. Uh, gnosis describes a, the, really the intellectual grasp of something. In simple terms, it's a possession of, of information of, of what, is, what is acquired, what is known. And again, Paul is admiring what God knows. He's admiring God's knowledge. Who but God could know that the gospel will prevail among all nations? Who could know that this gospel would save people from their sins? Nobody could invent this. Nobody would know this except God. Turn with me quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is writing here. Look at verse 18. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So, verse 18. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise... And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And this is Paul coming into contact with God's wisdom, starting to see the greatness of it. And he sees, finally, God's thoughts and God's plans, and, and Paul is amazed. He is amazed at the vastness of God's knowledge. He is amazed at God's wisdom, and he bows, really, his mind before the Creator, and he says in verse 34, look at verse 34 in our passage, back in Romans 11, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? This verse here in verse 34 is a quotation from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 40. Turn with me, if you would, there. keep your fingers in, in Romans chapter 11. But in Isaiah chapter 40, he uses these words by the prophet Isaiah really to, to describe his, his wonder. I'm going to read from verse 13. Isaiah 40, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? What man shows the Lord counsel? Verse 14, whom did he consult? And who made God understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught God knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Verse 15, behold the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. What Paul here is doing, he's, he's affirming that no one can teach God. No one can counsel God. No one can give God advice. You know, earthly kings and, and presidents, they have counselors of, of state, ministers of state, um, who who may consult with the, their leader, their, their president, about certain decisions. But Paul is saying here, God has no such counsel. He sits alone. He doesn't call in any of his creatures to give him advice. He created all creation. All created beings are not qualified to contribute anything to enlighten or to direct God. God is God and man is man. God gave us a mind and it is our duty to use that mind to, to think to the, to the very limits of, of human thought and understanding. I'm not saying we mustn't use our minds. But it is true that at times, like Paul is doing here, when that limit is reached, and we can no longer reason or understand God's wisdom. And at that point, all that is left for us is to adore God and accept God for who He is and ha as He has described Himself in the Scriptures. And many times in life, there's, there's nothing left but to say, I cannot grasp your mind, Lord, but with my whole heart, I will trust in you. 
your will be done. Thy will be done. Even though we may not understand it. And Paul finishes his adoration in verse 35 by, by asking, who is God in debt to? Who does God owe anything to? Who is God under obligation to? And again, in the context, Paul is speaking of the wonder of the gospel. And Paul is emphasizing that no one can, can plead with God for their own salvation. No one can earn their own salvation. No one can plead their merits. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord will give salvation to who He chooses to give it to. He is the author and He is the finisher of our faith. Mercy and grace is given by our Lord when and where He pleases. Remember, this is the start of, of Paul's doxology. And Paul's doctrine from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 11 has led him to this conclusion, has led him to this wonder. He, could not, he cannot understand it all, but he chooses to trust the Lord in his wisdom. One commentator, he writes in his commentary on Romans, he says, what should be our response to our contemplation of God's supremacy in all of the universe? And then he says, our response should be just like Paul's doxology, Paul's praise, worship. Our theology should lead us to worship. What we know about God, what we study about God, should lead us to worship God. Not to dislike God, not to be angry with God, not to hold God to ransom. Our understanding of God should lead us to worship. And if our understanding of God leads us to those other things, then we have a wrong understanding of God. We need to go back to the Scriptures and change our understanding of God. Something's gone wrong. Our understanding of God should lead to worship. Worship is the only appropriate response to the revelation of God's deepest truths. We are finite creatures who will never understand the Lord exhaustively. Even as we learn more and more about Him throughout all eternity, we will never be able to contemplate fully the mind of God. We will never cease to be in awe of God. And instead, our awe needs to grow. Our admiration needs to grow. Our praise needs to grow as we worship God alone. Secondly, my second point, we see Paul starting his praise here. He's starting his theological praise. And Apostle Paul begins verse 36 with a, with a theological affirmation about God in the first part of verse 36. Look at your Bibles. He says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. First, where do all things come from? Paul answers the question. From Him. That is, all things come from God. The entire universe came into existence by God. 
God planned every single aspect of creation. And there is nothing in all of creation that did not originate in the mind and the plan of God. And as far as the new creation is concerned, God has planned the salvation that is able to save sinners completely. Physically, spiritually, God is responsible for all creation. Second, how do all things come into being? Paul gives the answer in this verse. Through Him. Through Him. And that is, all things come into being through God. God created all things. Nothing exists that were not created by God. God simply spoke and it was created. I mean, picture that. God spoke and the sun came out of His mouth. God spoke and the world came out of His mouth. Try picture that. Try understand that. When God decided to create the universe, He did not do so in order that humanity would be glorified. He created the universe in order that He would be glorified. Another commentator is right in his notes on the New Testament when, when he says, The reason or end for which all things were formed is to promote His honor, to promote His glory. It is not to promote His happiness, for He was eternally happy, not to add anything to Him, for He is infinite, not that He might act as God and have the honor and praise that is due to God. And as far as a new creation is concerned, even our salvation is for the glory of God. One of the questions that has repeated itself for centuries, that everyone asks this question at one time or another, is this question, what is the meaning and the purpose of life? I asked you to pray for Adele's friend last week, Melinda. Um, this is a question that she asked me when I sat and I prayed with her. She died on Friday, but as I got to speak with her, as she was asking all these questions about what is the meaning and the purpose of life, I was able to go to the scriptures and show her, Melinda, the answer is right here. This is our purpose. You know, when you get to the end of your life, that's an important question. It may be a little too late, but it's an important question that we all should be asking ourselves. What is the purpose of life? And the answer is here. Our greatest purpose in life is to glorify God. It's to glorify the one who has created all things. The reason I live, the reason you live, the reason you have breath in your lungs, the reason your, your heart beats is to glorify God. Because as the scriptures tell us, for from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. The entire reason for living is not for ourselves. It's not to build our kingdoms. It's not to even fill in the blanks. Our entire reason for living is to glorify God. It is to glorify God. Theologian John Murray, he summarizes verse 36 when he says that, God is the source of all things in that they have proceeded from Him. He is the Creator. He is the agent through whom all things subsist. 
and are directed to their proper end. And here's the last end to whose glory all things will redound. And here Paul begins with adoration of, of the heart and then theological praise, affirming that all things were, were made by God for God. And now Paul concludes with worship. Here we see devotional worship, and that's my last, my last point at the end of verse 36. He writes about God. He says in verse 36, To Him be glory forever. Amen. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let me ask two questions that will help us understand Paul's doxology here, his praise. First, who is glorified? Who is glorified? It is God who is to be glorified. You know, we think of ourselves far too much. Even in, in a worship service, we, we think of other things rather than about God. John Calvin, one of the early reformers, he, he wrote in his book called Institutes of the Christian Religion, he said, We never truly glory in God until we have utterly discarded our own glory. It must therefore be regarded as a universal proposition that whoso glories in himself glories against God. The elect are justified by the Lord in order that they may glory in Him and in no one else. Another contemporary Christian author and pastor, well, um, not anymore. He died in 1963, A.W. Tozer. I thought it's important that I share his view on this with you as well. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, this is what he wrote before 1963, okay? Just before 1963. He says, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for a low, ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshipping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little, and without her knowledge and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. This low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere amongst us. And then he says, with our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. He says, we have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet in adoring silence. He says, the loss of concept of majesty has come just when the forces of religion are making dramatic gains and the churches are more prosperous than at any time within the past several hundred years. But the alarming thing is that our gains are mostly external and that our losses wholly internal. I thought, wow, here's a theologian, in, even in 1960, recognizing people not understanding the magnitude of, of God. And as a result, the effects seen in society as well as the church. Here's a contemporary author, David Wells, who's still alive today. He wrote a book, God in the Wasteland. And the author speaks of what he calls the weightlessness of God. He was a, he's an North American um, 
pastor as well as a professor. And this is what he says. He says, God now rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His Christ, if he is seen at all, is impoverished, thin, pale, and scarcely capable of inspiring awe. And his riches are entirely searchable. It is God that the church needs most. God in his grace and truth. God in his awesome and holy presence. Who is to be glorified? I thought it important that I make that clear in the beginning because according to, to many people, our churches are not glorifying God. And I wanted to ask that question today. Is that, is that perhaps true with us as a church? Maybe we are guilty of of entertaining this very low view of God. Maybe our, our view of God is this impoverished, thin, and pale deity that, that really doesn't inspire awe. And maybe the reason why, why people don't come to church and why people aren't interested in going to home groups and why people aren't interested in, in coming to our corporate prayer meetings is, is because God is not a priority. Maybe He is this insipid, pale deity that doesn't inspire worship. Maybe we are guilty of thinking that God and His church really does exist for us. And really what we've done is robbed God of His glory, thinking that church is really all about us. Does your life exist for God's glory? That's the question that we have to answer today. Really, does it? Or is God only worship when it is convenient for you? When it's convenient for you? Is your redeemed life making a difference for Christ and His church? Are you being the salt and the light in this world that, that brings glory to God? The Puritans used to teach it that Christians must not separate the secular from the sacred. And what they meant by that is, is to think that some things fall under the banner of religion, while, while other things should have nothing to do with religion. So church is church, and work is work. We mustn't mix the two. God may speak to the sacred things in our life, but He really doesn't have any place in the secular parts of our, of our life. We can act and behave spiritually in church, but that spirituality mustn't affect our workplace. Don't expect me to be a Christian in the workplace. And they spoke against that as, as believers. They wanted people not to separate the sacred from the secular. And I think that's exactly what all of these commentaries are, are telling us today. If we're going to glorify God in our bodies, in our lives, if we're going to make a difference for the glory of God, it has, to, it has to start at home, but it has to penetrate into our workplace, and it has to affect our community, right? We're not just Christians on a, on a Sunday. When we grasp the reality of God's glory, when we see the magnitude of who God is, our devotion will move beyond the four walls of our worship place on a, on, a, on a Sunday afternoon. 
We will live all of life to the glory of God, not just an hour and a half on a, on a Sunday afternoon. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, speaks of the fact that we must talk of the things of God. In verse 5, it says, when, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And this covers every area of our lives, Monday to Sunday, 24 hours a day. And really, we need to be done with, with artificial compartmentalizing our lives into, into sacred and in secular. We need to help one another to feel the weight of glory, of God's glory, the weight of God's glory in everything that we do. And make sure that God does indeed get the glory from our lives. C.T. Studd, he was a famous British missionary to China who was also an international cricketer, he penned these words from a poem. I'll share the full poem with you this week, but here's one part of it. He says, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And then lastly, why should we glorify God? That's the last question. Why should we glorify God? Well, firstly, because we are commanded to. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20 tells us, For you were bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, which belong to God. And this verse is a command to, to give glory to God because He has redeemed us from our, from our sinful, hopeless situation. He redeemed us at a price. And that price is the very blood of His Son, the very life of His Son. And we owe glory to God because of His, His great, gracious, loving sacrifice on our behalf. God gave His all for us. And really the only appropriate and respectful response from those He gave His all for is to live for Him, right? Is to glorify Him with our lives. One life to live. It needs to count. It needs to make a difference for God's glory. God should be glorified because from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. God should be glorified because of His material creation, but God should be glorified especially because of His new creation, because of the new life He has given to us. His work of salvation. We belong to God for we are His purchased possession. Our spirit, our soul, and our body belongs to the Lord. We are no longer slaves to sin. He paid a price to buy us back from the slave market of sin. And how important, therefore, to glorify God in our actions, in our words, and in our bodies. I shared with the music team earlier on this morning as I was preparing this message, I, I learned quite a bit about Johann Sebastian Bach. He's the famous music composer who was born in Germany in 1685, just shortly after the, the Reformation period. And his world was, was shaped 
by the, the teaching and the theology of Martin Luther in Germany. And Bach, he, he followed Luther's teachings and he, he purchased a copy of, of Luther's three-volume translation of the, of the Bible from Latin into Germany, a language he could understand. And he studied this Bible. He loved this Bible. This was his long-lost treasure. The Bible still exists, and you can see in that Bible where he's underlined passages of Scripture, where he's, he's written words in the margin of his, of his Bible, where he's, he's inserted his own thoughts and, and notes in the, in the margins. And Bach understood the heart of the Gospel. He loved the Gospel. He understood how sinful men are made right with the holy God through through Christ's death on the cross. He loved the gospel. And because of his theology, it affected his doxology. What he believed affected his behavior. It affected his music. And Bach composed many famous compositions that are filled with the magnitude of God's glory. Bach's life was filled with many tragedies, though, and trials. At a young age, he, he lost both of his parents. And when he returned from a, a trip away, he found his, his beloved wife dead. But she had already been buried by the time he arrived. He couldn't even attend her funeral. And 12 of his children died also at a very young age. Tragedy. But his grip on the gospel, his understanding of the truth of the theology helped him through these terrible trials. And you can read, uh, you, can, you can sense his sorrow in the, in the music that he has composed because he's been there. He's been there. And Bach's faith drove so much of his, his work. He didn't wallow in his sorrow. He gives God the glory in, in all of these compositions. He's often referred to as the, the fifth evangelist. He was determined he would write music for the glory of God. This is what he, he once said. He said, All music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. Where there is not remembered, where this is not remembered, there is no real music, but only a devilish hubbub. Everything he did was for God's glory. He lived a life that made a difference, that wasn't wasted. At the end of his compositions, he, he put the, the letter JJ on them, which was Latin, Jesus Jevu, which means Jesus help me. And then he ended his, his um, compositions with, on, on the bottom right corner of the pages, SDG, which is Soli Deo Gloria, which means to God alone be the glory. To God alone be the glory. His theology affected his doxology. He lived a life of praise because his understanding of who God was. He worked for God, and he believed God deserved his best. God deserved his best. I'm sure many of you watched 
the Rugby World Cup last night, early this morning. And as I was watching Sia Kulesi, he's the, the captain of the South African rugby team. As I was watching him be interviewed, it was wonderful to, to see his love for his country. And he kept on saying, you know, we were playing for 60 million South Africans. We were playing for everybody. And he kept on saying the South Africans inspired us to, to win this World Cup, to keep on going, not, not to give up. And then he talked about farmers in South Africa who, who opened up their, their farms for, for people who worked with them and, and their, their, their neighbors and, and their, their colleagues to come and watch the rugby. They rented these big rugby screens and they, they told people, come, come as you are. We're not, we're not pay, you're not charging you for any of this. Come and watch the rugby with us. And people would, would, would buy green uh, t-shirts and give them away for, for free so people could, could watch the rugby together. And then he talks about people gathering in, in shopping malls, people who didn't have TV or didn't have DSTV, and they went to the shopping malls and they sit outside these television shops watching the rugby and how these television shops opened their, their doors up and continued to, to let people be there after hours so that they could watch the, the rugby together. And he kept on saying, we're playing for these people. These people inspired us to win the Rugby World Cup. And I believe that. I believe he was inspired to do that. And that he thought in all of his heart that this was a worthy cause for, for trying as hard as they did, for training as hard as they did, for working as hard as they did to win the Rugby World Cup. They were willing, really, to put their bodies on the line in this game of rugby for their country. Maybe willing to die. Who knows? But the scriptures are telling us today, folks, that God is so much bigger than a game of rugby. God is the source of all things. God who created all the nations, not just the southern hemisphere nations, who created all the nations, is worthy. God created us, and He saved us to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. In a moment, we're going to sing the last song, Is Anyone Worthy? Listen to those words and read those words when you sing them. Here's one chorus. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The line of Judah who conquered the grave. He was David's root and the lamb who died to ransom the slave. He is worthy. He is worthy to receive all of our glory, folks. As I said, Melinda, she died on Friday. I think Vince and Michelle were the last people to see her alive before she, she went into a coma. She struggled with cancer and struggled with a lot of questions, but we got to share the gospel with her. And we pray that she responded to this gospel. And if she did respond to the gospel, and if she did repent of her sins, and if she did put her faith in Jesus, Melinda, who, who was a South African, was not rejoicing on Saturday because of the Springboks World Cup victory. 
She was worshiping Jesus. She was worshiping her Savior because He is so much more worthy. Because from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Father, we pray that You would please burn these words of Scripture on our heart this week. Help us to live our lives for your glory. We have one life to live, Lord. And what will last is what we do for you, Father. May we not be guilty of separating that which is secular from that which is sacred. Help us to be grounded in the truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone and that we will live for you unashamed of the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.